0: presents a conversation i want to make one
1: thing perfectly clear: a dialogue what are you prepared to do an astute debate everything you can do and a peek behind the curtain of politics and then what are you prepared to do i think chicago is not only the center of the country i think it's the center of the world don't
2: tread on them where did this statement come from this is the sunday
0: spin Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday afternoon, everyone. A beautiful Sunday afternoon in downtown Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, and welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for May the 3rd, 2020, the first Sunday in May. Welcome to our look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So be safe, be home, take a break, grab a beverage, and we'll get you prepared for the rest of the week. Well, this really has been some great weekend weather, Roger, I will tell you. I've just uh, really been amazed by how nice it's been, the ability to be able to go outside and uh, actually maintaining that social distance. But, uh, you know, uh, taking uh, taking some time. uh, It's spring, and the spring has sprung, uh, watching the flowers, and uh, really kind of... uh, enjoying nature again. And, uh, yeah, maybe we're kind of taking things at a more leisurely pace here, but, uh, I'm, I'm certainly enjoying it. And, uh, it was nice to be able to go out on the grill last night. It was beautiful to sit outside by the grill. And I have to think that, uh, you know, this isn't a bad night either to go back on the grill. So I actually, I actually maybe. uh, taking a look at that after the show this evening let's hope that the weather holds i'm glad those clouds from earlier today went away and brought the sun back out to uh enjoy for everyone to enjoy uh i i, I was going to say uh and i'm sure that uh roger probably has a few uh grilling tips for me tonight oh i'm here to uh um, provide, follow provide
3: everything that you're saying. Provide, and
0: provide, provide me my gilling, grilling tips.
3: Well, your grilling tips. Yes. Um, definitely.
0: Well, I am a you, griller from way back. I, yes, in fact, I think you were there when fire was invented. I invented. <laughs> f- actually, I was the
3: one who invented wood. Oh, really? Yes. You invented wood? Too. Yes, I did. Well, that's uh, and I named it. You named it. I'm the I'm the five million billion year old man.
0: And uh, so then you created charcoal briquettes.
3: Well, that was later. I had nothing to do on that day. Okay.
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
3: I was a little tired of, you know, enough going out into the field and fighting the animals. <laughs>
0: oh, It had to be so rough back then, I will tell you. Yeah, it but, w-
3: it was very rough. Back- I'm telling you, finding carbon...
0: Yes, in the ground
3: and compressing it into those
0: little briquettes. Tough job. Yeah, especially you know without without machinery.
3: Yeah. Oh, please, seriously, you t- you have to go up to the top of the mountain and drop a boulder just to form that compression that would form those briquettes, and then you climb back down, form another one.
0: See, that's oh. the thing with you, Roger. Everything's high pressure. It is <laughs> extremely high pressure. <laughs>
3: And I asked for volunteers, and you know, you didn't get any help. Nah, no, everybody was looking at me to laugh, and some of them were laughing. They walked away. Others were lo- starting to cry a little bit, but no. Yeah, I just, I just, did. I said, all right, fine.
0: I'll well, do it I myself. hope, I hope this is going to be part of the book that's coming out. Uh, um, so, part of some of that is true. Yes. So the book. Is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These are the lost chapters. These
3: are the lost chapters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> these were the edits the hard edits you had yeah
3: to make to I, you the know book. It, they said cut i said eh, all right no one's gonna believe it anyways so whatever
0: oh <laughs> i didn't have the pictures so the book's coming out and we'll be posting information on yeah on yeah the, on the website, um, i'm and...
3: expecting the mailings to happen in about two weeks
0: Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I'm, yeah. I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I know you love a good story. so I, I do. I, I, uh, I have a buddy of mine uh, who does not want his name used as he was telling me this story about how he had gone to uh, a local store or whatever. And he needed to get a mask because now we got the mm-hmm. new mask uh, orders. Mm-hmm. And he liked the mask that the guy had on. And he asked him, where did you get that? And he said, well, actually, it's a bra. <laughs> and I, I I cut it in half. Mm-hmm. I've seen those and, being and, made, yeah. And and so my my buddy decides to to go to uh, Target. Okay. Where he of course in, tells me how he's being closely followed by some <laughs> agent in the store because he's a rather large man. Oh. And uh, yeah, and he's going bra shopping. So uh, nevertheless. <laughs> he uh he 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 found a purchase and made Mm -hmm. it and he said "Uh, absolutely great idea so there's there's something to keep in mind i've I've
3: seen uh on social media uh tiff some videos on how to uh, sew the elastic how to attach the elastic to it so it'll stay you know uh behind your ears the elastic behind your ears and cover your full face and uh, again from the um bridge of your nose to under your chin, chin. Mm-hmm. that's where the the masks have to be.
0: Well, I, 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 I know my friend, and I, he's certainly not a seamstress, <laughs> uh, but he... he Staples? I, I, I think, yeah, that's <laughs> probably Staples? more likely, oh, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> Using some of that high pressure that yeah, you know you. he was dropping a boulder on the staple <laughs> to keep it all together.
3: <laughs> Those things jam a lot. You yeah, know what? He
0: yeah, is exactly <laughs> right.
3: But uh you what, didn't see the video of the one person walking into a store. It was a video taken by a clerk. Somebody walking into a store with a face mask on. Not a problem. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, they found it difficult to be able to breathe and
0: talk. I did see it. You did see that yes, one? Yes, where they cut the hole in the mm-hmm. mouth.
3: Yeah, so that she could breathe through her nose right. and her mouth. And then but she was still wearing a face right. covering
0: but what's the kicker to that story no. was the retail uh, yes. salesman says oh i like <laughs> that thank you for the good idea i to try that <laughs> oh, no, just, oh, what are you gonna do what hey, are you gonna yeah. do yeah well roger's got all of our latest news here producer cassara yep. is here to up, uh, field your phone calls we're at 312-981-7200 you can also text us at 312-981-7200 i'm rick pearson this is your sunday spin That's some uh, summer kind of day music there. Welcome back to your Sunday spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. I know a lot of restaurants are uh, doing their part and, uh, you know, as they s- struggle to survive in this new reality that we're in, a lot of them doing meals for first responders. And uh, uh, I want to make a pitch because a buddy of mine, uh, Mark at Weathermark Tavern, which is down at 1503 South Michigan, is has been uh, keeping people, uh, staff working by putting together meals and delivering them to first responders. And uh, he's been uh, taking donations from uh, folks in the uh, South Loop neighborhood. And uh, if you'd like to contribute, uh, give uh, Weathermark a call at 312-588-0230. Those uh, first responders are uh, really uh, our true heroes out there on the front line. Well, up ahead on the Sunday spin, after the uh, 5.30 headlines with Roger, we'll speak to Sheila Kennedy. She's the co-founder and executive director of Top Box Foods, and it's a nonprofit provider of... uh, food to impoverished areas in chicago lake county and more recently rockford we'll talk to her about the that need after the six o'clock news we'll speak to tom weitzel he's the police chief in suburban riverside and we'll talk to him about uh, law enforcement uh, and the rules that have uh, been issued in this pandemic after the 6.30 news update, we'll speak to Michelle Mason. She's CEO of the Association Forum, and that's the really the Association of Associations. And we'll talk about the pandemic's effect on a variety of associations that are based in Chicago. Chicago really being a hub and a, a large a job market in those associations. We'll talk to her about what is happening with them. We'll catch up on more news at 7 o'clock, and then we'll speak to David Merriman. David is a friend of the show. He's an economics professor at the U of I and he's part of the University of Illinois Systems Institute of Government and Public Affairs. We'll talk to him about the coronavirus' impact on state finances. And then after a final spin through the headlines with Roger at 7.30, we'll speak to Marianne Ahern, the political correspondent for NBC5 in Chicago, and we'll talk to her about the news of last week and what may lie ahead. That's all up ahead. We we had these protests in Springfield and Chicago uh, on May 1st over the governor's stay-at-home orders. And as a First Amendment supporter, uh, I respect the right to demonstrate, regardless of whether I agree with the the side, whatever the theme that's being pitched. And certainly there were ground rules laid for these protests, though not always followed, to try to maintain social distancing and wearing a mask uh, as, as the executive order from the governor states. And, of course, these protests are about wanting Illinois to reopen. Uh, and I, I I know people are antsy. Uh, I know people want to get out. They want to socialize. They want to see jobs. They want to go to work. Uh, they want to see jobs restored. And that's certainly a part of what occurred. But there was definitely no call for the anti-Semitic signs that some people waved. Some, of course, aimed at a Jewish governor. And I think it says much about those who waved them. I was particularly incensed to see a poster that said simply, Arbeit macht frei, JB. Now, for those who don't know, that's German for work will set you free. And for those who don't know, it was the slogan that hung over the gates of the Auschwitz concentration camp. It was a saying that meant death. Death for more than one million Jews and others who passed through those gates. The protester's sign was vile. It was disgusting. More than that, it was just very stupid. In fact, it was kind of counterintuitive because perhaps the protester literally thought work will set you free, so perhaps free to catch COVID-19. This really isn't a time for ignorance, folks. But as comedian Ron White said, Let me tell you something, folks. You can't fix, stupid. Yeah, you can't. You can't. Well, I'd like to go from that to uh, former President George W. Bush, who uh, over the weekend released a message uh, calling on unity in these very troubling and divided times. Here's former President Bush.
4: In this time of testing, we need to remember a few things. First, let us remember we have faced times of testing before. Following 9-11, I saw a great nation rise as one to honor the brave, to grieve with the grieving, and to embrace unavoidable new duties. And I have no doubt, none at all, that this spirit of service and sacrifice is alive and well in America. Second, let us remember that empathy and simple kindness are essential, powerful tools of national recovery. Even at an appropriate social distance, we can find ways to be present in the lives of others, to ease their anxiety and share their burdens. Third, let's remember that the suffering we experience as a nation does not fall evenly. In the days to come, it will be especially important to care in practical ways for the elderly, the ill, and the unemployed. Finally, let us remember how small our differences are in the face of this shared threat. In the final analysis, we are not partisan combatants, we are human beings, equally vulnerable and equally wonderful in the sight of God. We rise or fall together, and we are determined to rise.
0: That's the former president of the United States, George W. Bush. Kind of interesting that this comes out because also uh, I believe it's uh, American Experience on public television on Monday and Tuesday will have its two-part series on the Bush presidency that it's debuting uh, on Monday and Tuesday. So something that uh, some new television uh, to be able to watch. Time to kick off our spin through the last week in national politics, and we begin with the allegations that were raised by a former aide to Joe Biden during his tenure in the Senate, Tara Reid. Reid has contended that as an aide, she was sexually assaulted by Biden in a congressional hallway in 1993. She said she filed a complaint, but acknowledges she did not describe it as sexual assault or harassment, according to uh, an AP review. She said she didn't use those terms because they weren't commonplace in that time. For his part, Biden ended weeks of silence by going on the Morning Joe show on MSNBC, where he denied any assault happened, and encouraged a check of congressional records to see if a complaint had been filed. Here's the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, speaking about Tara
4: Reid. I'm not gonna question her motive. I'm not gonna get into that at all. I don't know why she's saying this. I don't know why after 27 years, all of a sudden this gets raised. I don't understand it. But I'm not going to go in and question her motive. I'm not gonna attack her. She has a right to say whatever she wants to say, but I have a right to say, Look at the facts. Check it out. Find out whether any of what she says is asserted or true. And based on the investigations that have taken place so far, to the best of my knowledge, by two major papers, they interviewed dozens of my staff members, not just senior staff, but staff members, I'm told. At least that's what they said. And nobody. This was not the atmosphere in my office at all. No one has ever said anything like this.
0: That's uh, Joe Biden. Now, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi endorsed Biden last week and said she was satisfied that no assault had occurred. Here's Nancy Pelosi.
5: I have complete respect for the whole Me Too movement. I have four daughters and one son, and uh, there's a lot of excitement around the idea that women will be heard and be listened to. to. There is also due process, and uh, the... Fact that Joe Biden is Joe Biden, uh, we, there's been s- statements from his campaign, or not his campaign, but his former employees who ran his offices and the rest, that there was never any record of this. There was never any record and that uh, nobody ever came forward or nobody ever came forward to say something about it apart from the principal involved. I am so proud. The happiest day for me this week was to support Joe Biden for President of the United States. He's a person of great integrity, a great concern for the American people. He authored the Violence Against Women Act uh, when he was the chair of the Judiciary Committee uh, in the 90s. He has been an advocate for funding it all along since then. And I uh, uh, I believe that uh, uh, he will be a great president of the United States. Uh, He is the personification of hope and optimism uh, and authenticity uh, for our country.
0: That's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Now, Republicans have complained that Democrats have been using a double standard here, that they're defending Joe Biden while they had gone after Supreme Court Justice Brent Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings and allegations that had been raised against him. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy of California said he thought Nancy Pelosi was being a hypocrite on the issue. Here's House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy.
2: You can't say one thing about every other time she's commented about any accusation and now say it's okay. She endorsed Joe Biden after knowing the Tara Reid situation. So, did anybody follow up with a question to the speaker? When you went to endorse Joe Biden, did you first look at this? And if she thinks his lack of response is a good enough response, then to me, that's being a hypocrite based upon the past comments she made on other situations similar to this.
0: That's House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy. So, as the U.S. death toll for the coronavirus crossed over 66,000 Americans, President Trump is defending his efforts and says he's proud of the job he's done.
1: I don't think anybody's done a better job with testing, with ventilators, with all of the things that we've done. And our our, uh, death totals, our numbers per million people are really uh, very, very strong. We're very proud of the job we've done.
0: That comment has received some criticism as well. Uh, The death toll, as I said, over 66,000 today. Today in Illinois, nearly 3,000 more cases, uh, over 2,600 total deaths in the state of Illinois. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. This is The Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Good Sunday afternoon. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. Um, Vice President Mike Pence, head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, uh, was asked on Fox News recently about several Republican governors that began opening their states with the change of the page in the calendar. Uh, Pence said he thinks much of the nation could actually be normalized by early June.
1: I think if the American people continue to practice social distancing, if they heed the guidance, um, particularly through any phased reopening from their state and local officials, I, I believe we could have much of this coronavirus epidemic behind us by early June. But, it, but it's going to take all of us and doing everything that we need to continue to do um, um, to get through this. But um, uh, I have every confidence that we will. Uh, and uh, as the summer goes forward, we'll continue to expand resources, expand testing, work to develop therapeutics and vaccines and um, uh, and be ready for whatever may come in the future.
0: Now, Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council advisor who once predicted little economic effect on the U.S. from the coronavirus, he was on Fox News last week, and he was asked about demands for up to $1 trillion of federal assistance for state and local governments across the nation. Kudlow didn't answer the question. Here he is.
4: We hear the other side of the aisle. We're looking at it. I'm not going to make any pronouncements. The president's going to be the uh, decision maker, as always. All I would say is this. Uh, On our side, we would like to see pro-growth measures to help us in the medium and long-term regain the spectacular economy we had earlier this year and in prior years. Look, we'd like to see things like payroll tax cuts uh, for the workers' working side, uh, business investment expensing. We'd like to see middle class regulatory changes uh, for smaller businesses. Uh, we'd like to see some protection and safeguard against liability lawsuits, again to help smaller business. We'd like to help restaurants uh, open. So we have our own set of asks and we'll probably come together in a few weeks and resume the discussions that's the national economic council director
0: larry kudlow well we're going to switch gears now bring things a bit more locally and joining me on the phone is sheila kennedy sheila is the co-founder and executive director of top box foods sheila thank you so much for joining me
6: yeah, thank you so much for having me on rick Well, let's
0: explain what Top Box Foods is, first of all.
6: Okay. Um, Top Box Foods is a nonprofit based in Chicago, um, and what we do is we create access in underserved communities um, to fresh fruits and fresh vegetables and also to high-quality meats, chicken, fish, and pork.
0: Basically trying to fill those deserts.
6: Right. So we operate in food deserts. So in Chicago, you know, mostly on the south and west sides, but, you know, we operate all over Chicago um, and then also in Rockford, Illinois. Um, and what we do is we partner um, in the community with a network. So our partners include schools and churches and healthcare care providers, uh, community organizations, housing facilities, Um, And our partners spread the word that this uh, food is available in their community. So, for instance, we partner with Rush Hospital and uh, St. Sabina. And so in those cases, uh, the folks at Rush Hospital will spread the word to their employees and also to their patients and to their community. Um, And then at St. Sabina, Father Flager will uh, spread the word to his members that this food is available in the community, um, you know, and we deliver right to the community.
0: I know uh, that you just had a uh, uh, a, a big kind of uh, distribution in Rockford. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Uh, and, in fact, a, a friend of mine was uh, one of the volunteers, uh, Porter McNeil, who lives out in the Quad Cities. Uh, but he said that uh, Top Box, he believes... Uh, delivered so many boxes yesterday it was four times than any previous delivery in Rockford is that an indication of really how bad things are in Rockford
6: well I mean the need is so great Um, the need is so great so in Rockford hundreds and hundreds of boxes of of food were delivered by um, incredible volunteers um, and the leadership in Rockford, you know, Unite Away is our partner there, our primary partner, but also, you know, the state rep and alderman and the mayor of Rockford and all sorts of um, other electeds and union officials. Everybody helped us spread the word that this food was available, and then they all stepped up to help um, deliver the food because, you know, our model really relies heavily on volunteer help.
0: So, I mean, obviously, this is a this is even before the pandemic. This was a, a very important venture for getting food to people. Uh, yeah. But, but I mean, since the pandemic, I mean, what what is the situation on the ground?
6: Well, you know, before the pandemic, we would deliver our food um, to a central community location. So. You know it might be a church, and then people would come and you know it was a nice community event and people would come and pick up their food and then um, and go home but of course that can 't happen now, so now we have switched our model and we 're making home deliveries and I knew the need would be great, but i didn 't anticipate how great so to give you sort of a sense of of just maybe this week we've just this week of loan we 've relied on Volunteers and they've spent 500 volunteer hours just this week, and in the last three days, we delivered over 4,500 boxes of food. So the need is incredibly great.
0: And how do you how do you cope to meet that need?
6: <laughs> we're all the Kennedys in this house are working. You know, we're <laughs> we're leaning on we're leaning on everybody we know to help. Um, you know, we have a small staff at Top Box Foods, and they're uh, doing an incredible job of rising to the occasion. But, um, you know, the the need is great. Um, I, I, you know, even before the pandemic, I uh, heard about a Feeding America study that said that when people are taking, you know, when they uh, get their groceries or taking advantage of pantry services or food bank services, on average they get 5% of their groceries there. So if you're living in an underserved community, that's a food desert, you know, if it's difficult to find a grocery store, or if you, um, are short on money, which is a lot of people these days, um, you need to find that 95% of your groceries elsewhere. And so that's where Top Box Foods comes in. Um, we don't, we don't give the food away, but our food is offered at up to 40% below retail. So it's, only two types of food two beautiful fresh produce and then also you know meats chicken and fish and that kind of thing
0: Been a lot of talk of course about the the food chain and disruptions in that particularly in uh, uh food processing involving uh meat livestock pork are, are you seeing that as you try to you know stockpile to get to to these uh, to make these uh, deliveries
6: you know we um so we've been we've been talking to our supply chain vendors about that um our in our supply chain, we partner with vendors who actually share our mission so um you know and that's partly how we're able to get the food at such a low cost and then we pass it along to the people that we serve um you know they're in they're in it with us, we're in it together, and so far we haven't you know we haven't felt the effects, but you know it seems dire to me and hopefully hopefully it'll be okay but we've seen enough food
0: we're speaking with Sheila Kennedy she's the co-founder and executive director of Top Box Foods I'm Rick Pearson this is the Sunday Spin Welcome back to your Sunday Spin, 546 on this Sunday afternoon. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio on this beautiful Sunday late afternoon, early evening. Joined on the phone by Sheila Kennedy. She is the co-founder, executive director of Top Box Foods, co-founder with her husband, Chris Kennedy. And uh, we're talking about... Uh, The service that Top Box Foods provides to underserved areas, uh, basically food desert type areas, and the need uh, being so great, particularly at this time. And and Sheila, I have to say, you know, there's even before the pandemic, um, food deserts were always kind of a a underlying concern, uh, definitely in the city of Chicago. And. You know, you can go back years and there was talk about, oh, here's this master plan we're going to have to, you know, encourage um, grocers to locate in some of these underserved areas. We've seen a little bit of that. Um, But I have to wonder now when you look at, you know, this uncertainty of the economy moving forward, you know, what are the opportunities as far as business going into some of these underserved communities to provide groceries.
6: I mean, you know, so top box foods has stepped in, you know, to fill that gap and to make groceries, you know, uh, available to people living in these food that de- food deserts. But, you know, I would say it's a difficult proposition to, especially now to, um, you know, open up a full service grocery store. So there are, um, corner stores, um, you know, and there are um, a smattering of grocery stores in, you know, uh, that aren't too far. But food deserts really are areas where there just really is no access to fresh produce and, and, and the kinds of meats and chicken and fish that we offer. Um, and so if, you know, if you are living in a food desert, at least in Chicago, it's typically, you know, low income and, um, there's a lot of stressors that exist in poverty, making it even worse and exacerbates the problem of a food desert. So you might have to take, you know, two buses to get to the grocery store or, you know, you might have your children. And, you know, I mean, it's it's way harder, I think, to live in a food desert, particularly if it's in a low-income and stressed community.
0: So in normal times when you have uh the, the uh, availability of these uh, produce and and meat products to to purchase at discount is that kind of was that a centralized kind of location aspect?
6: yeah, so what we did was we tried to partner with as many you know as many community organizations as we could, and um a lot of them are churches actually um and so we would deliver once a month um to you know these locations. Um, We'd rely on volunteers to staff these deliveries. Uh, We'd have truck routes going out on multiple stops, multiple routes, um, one Saturday a month. And it was a big, you know, sort of a community get-together. And people would pick up their food and, you know, uh, then at the community location, they'd feel more bonded to that location, you know. And so that that model, you know, we started it in 2012, and since then we had reached – um, 12,000 people. But since the pandemic, you know, we had to switch that. So now we deliver straight to people's houses, right? which is a completely different thing.
0: <laughs> that, that, that was not the model, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I, I just, I, I think about, you know, the uncertainty again of no one, uh, people, people suddenly losing their jobs, um, uh, the, the fact of needing assistance. And I I guess, you know, I wonder, is there still somewhat of a stigma attached to taking part in programs like yours?
6: Um, I, you know, I think that people, I don't think so, and I hope not. You know the Kennedys, our family. We um, we eat Top Box foods all the time, and in fact, if you've been on Chris's Facebook page, he posts pictures of me frequently after I've made a meal with this food. So th- this food, people are actually paying for it. So there's a there's a you know uh, high level of expectation of what what food they're going to get. So there's a lot of pride in in the in the transaction. And, um, you know, we work hard to gain people's trust and, um, you know, we're proud of the food that we offer. You know, it's the, really the highest quality, um, out there.
0: Uh, I was wondering too, is, is through your, uh, program, can people use SNAP benefits and things like that?
6: Yeah, people can use SNAP benefits and that's, you know, I think that is, you know, particularly if you're living in a food desert, to be able to use your SNAP benefits on, you know, fresh produce or, you know, these meats, um, I think that's a great way to stretch your SNAP dollar because it's below the cost at retail. Um, and so, you know, you can get more healthy food for that.
0: There's been a lot of talk about, you know, because of the pandemic, about whether uh, SNAP benefits should be uh, extended to more families whether the the benefits themselves should be increased uh you you know from what from what you do are the snap benefits adequate
6: i mean i don't think they're adequate um i also think that you know the government was going to drastically reduce the amount of uh, benefits that people got um so thankfully they put a hold on that um and so they did it they did you know they didn't decrease the amount as they had told us they were going to do. But, you know, SNAP benefits, I, you know, I, I love hearing Tammy Duckworth's story about when she was, um, you know, they had, they had hard times and SNAP benefits allowed them to get back on their feet. It's a temporary thing. Um, and people who need SNAP benefits and need those to buy something as basic as groceries, you know, I think that we ought to do that for our, uh, you know, fellow Americans.
0: Now, obviously, this has been uh, a program, as you said, since twenty twelve in, in in Chicago on the South and West Sides. Um, now, is is Rockford now a, a a permanent part of the program?
6: Right. So, Rockford, um, you know, we partnered with United Way in twenty seventeen, and we were doing monthly deliveries in Rockford. Um, And then this yesterday was really, uh, we brought in, um, you know, the leaders, the community leaders in um, Rockford along with the United Way. And so it was a different kind of uh, delivery this, you know, this uh, this weekend. Um, So I think it is going to be permanent, I'm happy to say. I think that the... United Way is an incredible partner, um, and we have a next delivery, which is going to be May 16th there.
0: And uh, this program, I mean, it does extend beyond Illinois, doesn't
6: it? It does. So we, you know, our biggest, our biggest part of the program is in Chicago, um, and then we have Rockford, but we also operate in New Orleans and also starting in Atlanta.
0: And New Orleans has been for some time. Am I correct?
6: Yes, right, right. So they've been for some time, and um, you know what they've done during the pandemic. They also make home deliveries, but because the farmers' markets had been put on hold, the farmers had no way to distribute their food. So in New Orleans, at least, we partnered with farmers to uh, help get that their food out. So um, you know, it's been it's been a great thing all the way around.
0: And you said Atlanta is just starting, is that correct?
6: They're just starting, so, you know, this is a challenge. Because well, that's, I think that's, they...
0: that's why I asked, because this seems like an interesting time to, you know, besides having to adjust your model to, you know, you, you do have this desperate time of need, and it, it seems like a difficult way to start.
6: Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're pretty nimble, and we adjust fast, and so you know we're we're gonna keep working on Atlanta, but we're actually our my effort and Chris's efforts are mostly focused in Chicago and in Rockford
0: yeah, well, what about as far as other areas of the state?
6: Um, well so far um, you know we have not we were up in Lake County for a bit uh, in partnership with the northern illinois food bank um, and um and that was an excellent partnership um, that you know we ended up focusing more on the south and west sides of Chicago. So we put that one on hold.
0: Where can people get more information about this? As you said, you rely he- heavily on volunteers. And, uh, you know, the people are kind of in a volunteer spirit these days. I mean, how, how can they find out where they can pitch in?
6: Um, okay. I love that question because we do rely on the generosity of volunteers. And, you know, it's it's a wonderful thing to, you know, work with volunteers who are interested in helping out. Um, all they have to do is go to our website, um, and that's topboxfoods.com, and they'll see a place that says, How Do I Get Involved? And um, or there's another place that says, if you'd like to volunteer, click here, and both of those will take you to a place where you just fill in. Um, but there's different things people can volunteer doing. They can um, be delivery drivers, and we have a whole protocol of that keeps everybody safe, the volunteers and the people who are receiving the food. Um, we also need people to help us out in the warehouse. Um, and then if people are wanting to stay in their homes uh you know if they're more vulnerable and though we have a lot of work that can be done from home in the form of making phone calls so there's lots of ways people can pitch in
0: i want to go back to one thing i asked you earlier and you said you have, you know the partners in supplying this food uh but you you expressed some concern that 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 supply chain may be maybe having some serious problems
6: I mean right we haven't experienced it firsthand um yet but you know I we've talked to our suppliers and you know we're keeping we're keeping our plan going forward and you know we haven't cut back on anything although the some of our suppliers um we have increased our work in our warehouse um so that the work of packaging these boxes gets done by us and some in the past some of the suppliers did that so that's really the only the only change i think um i haven't really seen firsthand uh uh you know less food
0: it sounds like—I uh, mean—it sounds like a, a real uh, volunteer effort would be working in that warehouse.
6: Just, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, given 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 the need, given the number of, uh, of of boxes that that need to be processed, that would seem to be like the preeminent preeminent place that uh, you folks are looking for some help at.
6: Right, either that or delivery drivers, because um, there's a lot of. Um, you know, because people are doing it in their cars and we do use refrigerated bags and, you know, we keep the, we try to keep the food cold. The amount of stops people can make are limited because you want to make sure that the food maintains its, its integrity, you know, so it doesn't thaw if it's frozen or, you know, that it stays fresh.
0: That's Sheila Kennedy. She's executive director and co-founder of Talk Box Foods. Sheila, thank you so much for joining me today.
6: Rick, thank you for having me on. Thank you.
0: Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday evening. Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline Studio, and joining me on the phone is Tom Weitzel. He's the police chief of Riverside, and uh, Tom has been a, a I don't know frequent guest, occasional guest on the show. But Tom, uh, chief, it's good to good to have you on the air.
7: So, good evening, Rick, and thank you for having me.
0: Well, there are a variety of issues, and people are asking me questions all the time about, you know, where where does law enforcement fit in when we're talking about these issues of uh, the executive orders that the governor has issued and the governor has said that it's up to the local governments to... Uh, act to enforce these kinds of things and i mean truly right off the top i had somebody asking me the other day that now that we have the uh order in effect that people should wear uh, a face mask in situations where they can't avoid social distancing the six the six foot rule uh who's going to enforce that
7: well, you know, you're absolutely right. The governor's executive order is that he is leaving the enforcement up to local law enforcement. And, you know, we have daily conference calls with the state um, police director and his staff give the local police chiefs and command staffs uh, guidance. And I do mean guidance. They're not giving us directives or orders. They're giving us guidance on what to do in those situations. And the, most of those situations are just ask for compliance. Or if there's something that rises where somebody doesn't comply, or we get continued complaints, that we would cite them under a village ordinance. A criminal arrest in these situations should be very rare.
0: And I think no one wants to see it that way. And it, I would imagine that just that effort of asking for compliance is is really you know enough in most cases. But then you know when you see these stories and and their stories from not just chicago but stories from throughout the state about people throwing house parties um uh, it, it seems to me that you know some people just feel that they can get away with this
7: yeah those house parties can be um a, a bit of a problem the way we've been handling those and the way the guidance has come down from you know, different police organizations is that you know most For example, if that was to happen in my community, we would disperse the party. Um, But, you know, it's difficult. The officers have to show up. They have to put on their own protective equipment. They would have to go into a home or condominium apartment, disperse that. And we would probably cite the owner of that property or the renter. And, And that is even a situation that could be handled the following day. The main objective would be to ask them to disperse. Most of the time they would. And if they didn't, we would just assist them in dispersing. To be able to make wide-ranging arrests in that situation is not – the proper way to go. Because quite frankly, Rick, they're not keeping them in jail anyway. So we're so arresting these individuals. You're immediately bonding them out. The court systems are closed. The bond court wouldn't take them. They would probably give them a recognizance bond immediately. So it'd be this big circle that went around. And I'm not sure much would be accomplished with that. What needs to be accomplished is we disperse it, And we would hold hold the person responsible that owns the property or rent the property.
0: You you touched him on on you know having to put on uh, protective wear. Uh, How what is the situation with local police departments and that personal protective equipment?
7: Well, it's gotten better late. It certainly was not. We didn't have a lot of protective equipment early on, and most, at least for law enforcement, most of it consists of an N95 mask, uh, some type of eyewear, and gloves. And, it, and sometimes we also have the face shield and a full gown, depending on what the situation is. But always, every time those officers get out of their car and have dealing with somebody, they're putting on their mask and they're putting on their gloves and some type of eyewear. And we don't have an endless supply. Now, why the supplies have increased as of lately from the county, who's probably getting it from Washington, D.C., it's not like we can use it and then keep putting new ones on every single day for officers that have fifteen twenty contacts with people. We just don't have that type of supply but you
0: said it's gotten
7: better it has we just we now from my from my own example, we just took a shipment from the cook county um, homeland security recently, so it has it has recently it has increased initially, as you can understand, probably most of it was going towards uh, healthcare professionals, and then even paramedics and firefighters were probably going in homes before the police did on some situations. But it has—we have definitely seen an uptick in the uh, personal protective equipment as of well. late.
0: How much of what's going on in the law enforcement community about making stops or uh, those kinds of things is—is—is uh, is, is a balance about do I do I want to go into a situation where I might? get infected
7: yeah there is a so in, in my community in most communities there we're either returning phone calls to complainants that want to file police reports or criminal activity or or if it's in progress we have to respond to their home or their business sometimes we're asking them to step out of their business if they can and if they can't we have the officers have to put on their protective equipment and they need to go in and handle the situation but it is you know law enforcement is the type of of profession that we can't totally avoid contact with people even though we've instructed our officers to when available to call victims um, back especially on property crimes that they want to report a bicycle stolen or their house burglarized. if it's delayed or ask our dispatch center will ask the individuals to meet the officers out on the sidewalk so that the officers can maintain six feet distance uh, when they take the report that always doesn't happen there are Situations where they have to go in the home for domestic disturbances, other disturbances, of medical calls. So it's not like we can just say we cannot have contact with you. That's impossible in our profession.
0: It's not just file a form. That's for sure. Tom, no. we're speaking with Tom Whitesley, He's the police chief of Riverside. We're going to continue our conversation, but first, it's time for a break. You're listening to the Sunday Spin on WGN. 616 on this Sunday evening. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio as the Sunday spin continues. And we continue our conversation with Tom Weitzel, the police chief of Riverside. And I, I know, Tom, you, you issued a, a, a news release about this and, and a, about a week ago or so about uh, speeding. And I have to tell you, I'm not out on the roads that much, okay? Uh, but when I am, it's amazing. I mean, it is utterly amazing how people just see, they think the roadway is just clear and are just zooming. And
7: yeah, you're absolutely correct. And, you know, that's no secret. It doesn't take a trained professional law enforcement officer to realize that. What's happened is that there are some individuals that are taking advantage of the fact that police are making less traffic stops. That I mean, we're in this predicament where we're telling our officers to have less contact with The public for this short period of time, hopefully, and that they should be, in most cases, stopping individuals that are reckless. So they still are doing traffic stops, but they're not doing the normal routine, quote unquote, routine type of uh, speed enforcement. We're probably stopping the DUI offenders, we're stopping the reckless drivers, but there is absolutely an increase in speeding. And reckless driving, and there's less traffic down the roadway, so people at times had it wide open, and it's really been difficult, and there's been some pretty serious crashes as a result of that.
0: Well, I think back to a few weeks ago about the, the crash on the, uh, I think it was the Kennedy Edens around there with the, the multiple uh, vehicles that were involved, and as soon as I heard about it, I knew exactly what had happened, because people were just driving like Uh, there's no tomorrow.
7: Yeah, and and it's definite. I mean, we are receiving complaints of increased speeding and reckless driving. Now, the officers still are making traffic stops when they see reckless conduct or reckless driving or impaired driving, but they have, in most cases, most of the law enforcement agencies have just said, during this short period of time, we're, we want to have less contact right. that's with
0: that, the that's, motor republic. public. That's that balance I was talking about of, yeah. of that, that, that we're, we're kind of in. But, you know, at the same time, you know, when you look at people wanting to go out for a walk or her, the weather's changing, you know, people are out on their bikes or whatever. There's, you know, people are starting to come outside uh, and, and, you know, people don't
7: always follow the crosswalk. Um, yeah that 's something that 's really been a really noticeable is There are way more many people out walking biking walking their dogs and if you 've noticed something i haven 't noticed in a long time is people are trying to avoid each other on the sidewalk so they 're switching. They're crossing at mid-block. They're crossing to do the right thing, to stay six feet away, social distance. And and when you're driving, you know, all of a sudden these people are trying to do, residents are trying to do what they're supposed to do, and then the speed and the reckless driving, it can be a a real problem. So I would agree with you totally. Pedestrian traffic has definitely increased.
0: And that's something to keep in mind. I mean, everybody should keep that in mind if they're if they're getting behind the wheel. Just just keep that in mind. There's people outside, and uh, they're outside in numbers that we probably haven't seen in quite some time. So please keep that
2: in absolutely. Mind.
0: Uh, going back to when we talked about enforcement and and of of you know these these more, uh, I, I don't want to say the house parties, but 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 things like. Uh, People gathering in parks and those kinds of things, and I understand you're basically using uh, community service officers now to, to patrol parks.
7: Yeah, so we're we've reassigned our community service officers to different shifts just to patrol the parks at a different. In addition to the officers, and that 's to enforce the social distancing by compliance and you know the parks are open, the playgrounds are shut the athletic fields are shut. If somebody wants to jog through the park or somebody wants to walk their dog through the park that 's fine, especially if they 're social distancing and have their mask on it absolutely fine but we're just we 're just making sure that they don 't have their kids on the playground equipment and they're not playing basketball or they're not doing some organized events. Because one of the issues with that is, you know, if some people see that people can play tennis or they can play basketball, then another group comes and another group comes and it gets to be a very large gathering besides, you know, something that was small. And they're they're not, it's not like they're intending to do that, but people see other people doing it and they say, oh, you know, They're they're playing football. Why don't we go also play soccer here in the same field? And then it becomes crowded, and that's where the issues come to.
0: Well, and especially, you know, as we saw this weekend and and with the weather starting to turn into spring and, and getting warmer and that natural desire of wanting to be out, and given the, you know, limited number of places that people can go, they turn to parks and and those kinds of things, and
7: yeah, and I, and I I encourage people to get out and take their dogs for a walk and walk, you know, because you know tensions can rise when people are in the home and locked in their homes and apartments for a long period of time. It's good to get some fresh air and go out. Just just don't just please do the social distancing and wear a mask when it's appropriate. And um, I think that'll be you'll be okay.
0: I want to ask you about uh, a letter that you wrote to uh, the Cook County Commissioners about, uh, and this was on behalf of yourself as well as uh, the uh, Fire Emergency Chief uh, Buckley, Matthew Buckley in Riverside, uh, about the issue of the HIPAA requirements. Uh, these are the, quote, privacy requirements, and the need for uh, law enforcement as you put it and, and the fire department to know if they're going to a call is that person uh, uh, contagious infected with uh, COVID-19 and so far the county health department is as I understand it has rejected those calls
7: um, they have what and what, you know that's really concerning and it's extremely disappointing because myself and the fire chief of Riverside, Matthew Buckley, along with even our village president, was recently very supportive of the initiative. That The attorney general in Illinois, which widely considered the top law enforcement officer in the state, wrote a legal opinion that under these circumstances, one time, that there is a provision in the HIPAA requirement that would allow police just to get the address of a person home recovering from COVID 19 and we would know going there no no demographic information no those no particulars and then when he seems to have been recovered him or her we would take that out of our system we're not we're not holding it and we thought that that the county would uh comply once the attorney general issued an opinion saying yes not only is it legal there's an actual provision and the Cook County Department of Public Health said no. And recently, they were sued by Northwest Central Dispatch, Consolidated Dispatch Center, and the judge did not side with the dispatch center. The judge sided with the HIPAA requirement, even though the attorney general said it's legal.
0: Is that being appealed?
7: I don't think they've made a decision. It was just the decision just came out like Thursday or Friday last week that uh, that it was denied the uh, from the dispatch center. And I really, I can't understand that because we don't have enough. Their position was, well, the police should, and fire personnel should always treat every individual you come in contact with as having coronavirus, and we do. But if we had, the, we can't do, we don't have enough equipment to do that every single time with every single person. It, we, we would run out of equipment. It, it, and I'm talking personal protective equipment. It's impossible. So... In,
0: no chief so you're you're asking for addresses not the names of individuals
7: absolutely and from from day one we never asked for anything but the addresses we never asked for any personal information whatsoever
0: because i mean obviously that's where that's where we get into this situation about right of privacy and and those kinds of concerns but you just
7: absolutely you know, and you on the fire the police chiefs and fire chiefs were united we absolutely understand the HIPAA provision we comply with it every single day on a normal basis we were only asking in this case for addresses for this limited period of time that's all
0: one other thing i wanted to ask you about too was that uh you have become part of a mutual aid agreement with North Riverside, McCook, and Brookfield about uh, basically establishing that as kind of a, a multi-policing zone if 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 mutual aid was triggered over concerns about the officers who may uh, become infected and have to go off the job. Um, I'm wondering... Uh, has has this mutual aid uh, pact been invoked and uh, what is the situation on the ground as far as law enforcement officers in that uh, area uh, as far as COVID-19?
7: So currently um, it has not been enacted. It was a group of chiefs that all these municipalities that got together are in our consolidated dispatch center. We decided that what would we do if we lost a great percentage of our officers to COVID-19 because we're all small suburban police communities. So outside of just helping each other out, we wanted a formal agreement that we could handle calls in each other's municipalities totally. So we could be dispatched, for example, Riverside could be dispatched to Brookfield or North Riverside or McCook, and we could handle their calls for them from start to finish, no matter what that is. And you wouldn't have to burden the community that had several officers out because of the COVID-19. So um, our, our city managers and village managers and our elected officials supported it. and We recently got it signed. It has not been used. It's kind of a last worst case scenario, but we wanted this piece, uh, this document so that our residents and all the community know if you need the police, we're coming. Even if we're devastated, if we're devastated by the coronavirus, our neighboring police agencies will pick up our calls for service and you will get police service in their communities.
0: So a bit of foresight here, just in case.
7: Yes, it is. It is literally a worst case scenario, but we we wanted to make sure that, you know, our residents knew that all the residents in all the communities of Riverside, Brookfield, North Riverside, McCook, they know that if they call 911, you will get a police response.
0: That's Police Chief Tom Weitzel of Riverside. Chief, as always, a great conversation. Thank you for joining me.
7: Thank you. You have a great night. Thank you very much.
0: Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Amid all of the negative news surrounding the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci delivered at least a dose, a little dose, of good news involving remdesivir as a treatment. Here is Dr. Fauci explaining.
1: The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut significant positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. This is really quite important for a number of reasons, and I'll give you the data. It's highly significant. If you look at the time to recovery being shorter in the remdesivir arm, it was 11 days compared to 15 days, and that's a p-value for the scientists who are listening, of 0.001. So that's something that, although a 31% improvement doesn't seem like a knockout 100%, it is a very important proof of concept. Because what it is proven is that a drug can block this virus.
0: That's uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Um, politically, uh, Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney uh, who uh, Donald Trump has uh, admitted that he still bears a grudge because Romney voted to convict Trump on one of those articles of impeachment. Uh, Mitt Romney was in, made an appearance last week to uh, students at uh, Georgetown University, and he predicted that Trump would win re-election. Here is Mitt Romney.
1: I think it is uh, likely. That the incumbent will win. Why do I say that? Uh, well, it's been 28 years since an incumbent lost uh, uh, in, in his bid for reelection. Uh, there's great power to incumbency. You basically set the uh, the national agenda. You get TV time when your opponent can't. Uh, particularly in a crisis, you get a lot of TV time. Uh, I, I think it's likely that the economy will be doing better than we're feeling right now. We're you know we're headed down now. It'll probably be heading back up by November. And uh, that will auger to the uh, advantage of the incumbent. Uh, So I I think it's uh, and I know the polls today say that Joe Biden is is leading in a number of swing states. But we're far, far, far away from uh, from November in uh, in political life. Uh, So I think it's uh, it's pretty much a jump ball, although I think I give the advantage to the incumbent, President Trump. I think it's more likely he gets reelected than not.
0: That's Mitt Romney speaking to uh, students at uh, Georgetown University, uh, making his prediction on the outcome in November in the presidential contest. We're going to bring things back home to Chicago now, and joining me on the phone is Michelle Mason. She's the CEO of the Association Forum, and we're going to talk to her about uh, associations, largely Chicago-based associations, associations that are national in scope, based in Chicago, and what the pandemic has done to them. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me.
8: Thank you, Rick, for having me tonight.
0: Maybe, maybe as I've been saying, you're you're basically in charge of the Association of Associations, which I joked to, to somebody that's almost like saying I'm the head of the Department of Redundancy Department. But, but, <laughs> but maybe you could explain exactly what the Association Forum is about.
8: Oh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Before I do that, Rick, I actually like to to thank our uh, healthcare professionals and frontline workers and first responders. Those are uh, the heroes during this pandemic. Um, Chicago is the home to uh, the second largest market for associations, representing the number one market for healthcare and medical associations. And so, as you said, we are the association for associations here in Chicago for over 104 years. We have represented um, over 1,700 trade and professional associations with more than 47,000 employees. This represents an economic annual impact of $12.3 billion here in Chicago. Chicago. Our mission is really simple, is to advance the professional practice of association management. Our members are the American Bar Association, the American Dental Association, American Hospital Association, National Restaurant, and so many more.
0: And so, um... I mean, there's so many facets involved here. I mean, uh, with what associations do, from ranging from certification type issues to uh, even conventions and those kinds of things. And uh, I mean, this what 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 has the pandemic done to associations?
8: It has a, it's had a significant impact on associations, just like everyone else across the board. Um, for us, it has impacted our revenue streams, associations. Uh, fundamentally, the definition of an association is a group of people joined together for a specific purpose. And to do that, we do that through meetings. We do that through uh, conferences. We do that through education events and such. And so what the pandemic has caused is for us to see a softening in that revenue, as well and a softening in the revenue as it relates to our, our membership dues. As I mentioned, we represent a vast majority of associations. And so I'll give you an example of one organization that is familiar to most that's the American Dental Association. And so when we think about dentists, we think about the ADA, which is headquartered here in Chicago, has over 200,000 dentists that have not seen a patient in two months. And think about the impact of ADA from a travel, uh, from a, a convention's perspective. It has, it's having a huge economic impact. And just recently, and we appreciate that 501c3 organizations were included in the third relief package, we're hopeful that there will be a fourth stimulus package that Will include five hundred one c six organizations, which represent the vast majority of our population.
0: Why don't you explain what a, a five hundred one uh, c six is? is that, that's that's <laughs> under under the tax code
8: great. I'm happy to do so. So when we think about tax exempt organizations, um, it refers to federal income tax exemption governed by the Internet, um, the internal revenue uh, code. So a 501c3 organization is typically a charitable organization, education, religious organization, so many are scientific-based. A 501c6 organization is operated to promote a common business interest um, and to improve business conditions. So for example we think about trade associations. And when we think about that, uh, an example would be the uh, National Manufacturing Association. Um, Association Forum is a 501c6 organization. We also have a 501c3, which is more of our charitable arm and our education on.
0: And so 501c3 was included in the last uh, relief bill.
8: Absolutely. 501c3 organizations were included. 501c6 organizations were not included. And so we've engaged in a significant aggressive advocacy efforts because we recognize that 501c, nonprofit organizations or businesses in general, we have payrolls. We put, We put. Our focus now during this uh, pandemic is to make sure our staff are employed. As I mentioned to you, there are over 40,000 uh, employees uh, in nonprofit organization, Association specifically is what I'm focused on today. And so our focus is to make sure we keep our people employed and we're able to maintain normal business operations. We realize that this is not a sprint, it is a marathon and that's why the support um, is required for us and inclusion is important. We recently had a town hall with uh, Representative Raja Crystal and he is a strong supporter of associations and he Encouraged us to mobilize on a national day of advocacy because we know that the time is now. The time is of essence, and we need to con- uh, to contact our congressional leaders uh, because the relief the relief is important to us. We want to keep our members in business. We want to keep our our members members uh, uh, employed as well as our staff.
0: We're speaking with Michelle Mason. She is the CEO of the Association Forum. The association that basically looks out for other associations, the the kind of umbrella for associations, uh, not only here in Illinois and Chicago, but nationally as well. Michelle, we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue our conversation. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the the Sunday Spin. (music) Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me on the phone is Michelle Mason. She is the CEO of the Association Forum. We're talking to her about the impact of the pandemic on the association industry. And, Michelle, I, I, I kind of maybe let's move backwards just a little bit here because I, I tend to wonder if people, when they look at and, and consider something like, you know, a business association or an industry association, if in some respects they don't view that as kind of a, a bureaucracy kind of situation without maybe understanding what these associations actually do.
8: Yeah, uh, well, associations impact everyone's life. And we, as most businesses, organizations, we have governing bodies that are responsible for setting our strategic direction. In times like today, associations advocate uh, so that there is relief uh, for their members who are on. In many cases, I mentioned Chicago is the largest market for healthcare medical associations on the front line. So when we think about that and we think about the advocacy, the education, the certification, the accreditation, the professional development it provides as members, I can't imagine a world without a dentist not being accredited. I can't imagine a world without uh, an attorney not having access to continuing education or even hospitals without inspection. So these are the type of services that associations provide, and, uh, and again, with the lack of, of support or the limited support during this time we're not able to fully provide those services in a way that will help our members continue to deliver the impact um, the societal impact that they have been known to to provide.
0: And I can understand that some of these professional uh, associations like uh, dental medical uh, realtors, those kinds of things we're continuing education. Uh, licensing issues certification issues continuing education uh, is 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 an ongoing type of, of circumstance but it can't be accomplished right now
8: well we are you know like most, organizations now, we have to pivot. We are looking to do things in a different way. We have entered, if we will say, the new normal, where we would traditionally look to our primary engagement being in person. We are leveraging technology, whether it's virtual or looking when we're able uh, to reconvene a hybrid approach. Uh, we do believe that this there will be a new normal and our business models will be more innovative uh, than ever in the future. Uh, so, so there is a level of education and certification continuing to be uh, delivered, but it's not what it used. To. It was a couple of months ago. I mean, it was just, as you know, it was overnight. Things changed. And so, you know, we are, are, are adjusting to this new day and looking to to the future, which we believe could at least be 12, 18, 24 months before things turn around. Is We have a very close relationship with the travel and tourism industry, which is being impacted significantly to Chicago, for example. It's the Convention and Visitors Bureau that is responsible for marketing the city of Chicago to Chicago is a 501c6 organization so it doesn't have access to the funds as well so it's not just the type of organizations I represent there's a whole supply chain that's being disrupted here
0: yeah and and you you make a good point is that you know with conventions and those kinds of things and I'm not saying just here in Chicago or whatever but there is that kind of symbiotic relationship of conventions and associations Mm -hmm. with Uh, the hospitality industry with hotels with restaurants and obviously when you look at hotels and restaurants which are really two of the most struggling industries Mm -hmm. right now i mean obviously the sooner that uh associations could return to a point where we can have conventions again. I'm still doubtful that uh, despite uh, Tom Perez, the Democratic National Chairman, saying this morning that he believed that uh, the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee will go on as scheduled in mid-August, I think there are serious questions about whether that indeed will happen. But certainly in kind of trying to restart the economy, there would seem to be a role for Associations in in trying to get hotels, get restaurants, get things Absolutely. back to normal.
8: Absolutely, I uh, associations. Are key or essential to reigniting the um, the the economy. We at Association Farmers starting a campaign in to Restart because we need for Chicago to be successful here, and we know that it is a collaboration, is a partnership, and tourism and travel is a very important component of our business. And I don't know about you, Rick, but I live downtown, and and when I when I see uh, that the the, the lack of, of, of tourism and 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 those enjoying our wonderful City here, I know that we're not bringing city-wise to the city. Right, we need those who fuel our economic engine. So it will be a, a long road ahead, but I know collaboratively with our partners, uh, we will we will recover from this. It, it will look very different, I predict, in the future.
0: Well, I was going to say, yes, we're, we, there, there will be changes, and we're all kind of. You know, a lot of us are working remote these days, and we're we're learning technologies that we mm-hmm. never worried about before. I, I, I mean, you know, everybody knows how to do Zoom, I think, almost now. Exactly. Those kinds of things. Yeah. It's, and, and sure, it's not the same as that, you know, uh, personal contact, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I have to think for economic reasons, you know, that that isn't going to have an effect to, to change things uh, as we go forward.
8: But economically, we 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 need to figure out what is that right mix. Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, associations generate about twelve point three billion in economic impact. That's just here in the Chicago land area. But when we look at it from a national perspective, associations employ over one point three million, um, uh, or have you know their access to one point three million jobs, and as well as a payroll of fifty five billion. So this is a bigger. This is the bigger. Uh, issue here it's not just chicagoland we have visitors from from all over particularly at association forum 89 percent of my membership is national international in scope and so my members members are not able to travel to bring their revenue back to our city here in chicago if they're convening their meetings
0: yeah well and as we mentioned with dennis if you're not practicing if you're not practicing you're not paying dues
8: you're not practicing. You're not being do exactly. And think about it. ADA endorses our toothpaste, and our dentists are not working. So, um, we, we really need to uh, to make sure they have relief during this time. We really need to make sure the Illinois delegation hears our plea and is supporting us. And we at Association Forum were very committed to making sure they they have access to the education to understand. Um, 501c6 organizations and the contributions they're making economically, not just nationally, but locally.
0: Uh, When we look at these associations, I mean, uh, are some literally on the brink?
8: There are. There's one. um, There's one. I'll I'll share the story. We've been uh, discussing this story for a while now. The National Association of Concessionaires, located here in Chicago, their members are movie theaters, stadiums, arenas, zoos, aquariums, amusement parks. So you can follow the the, the, uh, the thread here. And so we are not convening large meetings. And so their members are, are, are not able to generate the revenue uh, to sustain their businesses, and therefore it has an impact on the association. So the entire supply chain is being disrupted.
0: A different kind of supply chain than what we've been talking about more recently. It-
8: Exactly. So when we look at their supply chain, we're, all, we're looking at these large event spaces, but we're also looking at the suppliers. We're looking at the equipment manufacturers um, that are all members of the association. And so this is a small organization located here in Chicago. Sixty percent of its revenue is generated from meetings. Sixty percent. So by July, that organization will need to make some decisions.
0: You mentioned that uh, your uh, members spoke with uh, Congressman uh, Raja Krishna-Morthy, the, the Democrat from uh, uh, Schomburg area. Uh, I'm curious, what is, what is the reception uh, of your request getting with other members of Congress as we wonder when there's going to be, because there will be, uh, what, because we wonder when and what's going to be in that next uh, relief bill?
8: Well, so, you know, we heard earlier today on the national news that there might be a pause. Well, I would advocate that we can't afford a pause on this fourth package. And I know that we know that uh, Raja Christomorfi is very supportive of associations. His wife is an anesthesiologist. The American Society for Anesthesiologists is located in Schaumburg, Illinois, and it's one of our largest members. So he understands who we are. He gets who we are, and he is um, very supportive. We are also planning to... To touch base with Senators Durbin and Duckworth offices, uh, we would like—they are supportive of associations. They understand what 501c6 and 3 organizations represent to our economy, and so our goal again is to equip them with these talking points, the education to to advocate for us in Washington
0: and we were we're talking uh, we're, we're mentioning you're mentioning names of democrats but i mean uh, associations are are a business organization that would exactly. also seem to you know have the interest of republicans as well what have you heard from that side of the aisle
8: well we are bipartisan we are bipartisan Understood. and so and yes we're absolutely willing and able and excited to work with any who's um available to support our cause
0: and I mean, what is it you're looking for in this in this uh, next relief legislation
8: we're looking at we're looking for financial aid we're looking for economic relief We're looking for stimulus dollars to maintain for associations to maintain their um payrolls and to maintain their business operations.
0: I'm sorry, how much are you looking for?
8: uh we're looking for federal loans we're looking okay. for support. Um, in this next package 501c6 organizations were um, excluded 501c6 and c5 organizations and so uh, we're just looking for aid just as uh, we appreciate again the support that was uh, provided a 501c3 uh, but there's a larger universe and market out there as it relates to c6 these um, c501c organizations
0: so basically if there's another round of like the payroll protection program exactly you're you're looking mm-hmm. for a seat at the table in that which is Basically aimed at more kind of labor intensive uh, businesses.
2: Then
8: yes, we're, we're yes we're looking for aid. We're looking for support. Our as I mentioned, our goal is to keep our uh, our staff on payroll to make sure our people are employed, and uh, to do that, we need a financial uh, relief.
0: That's Michelle Mason. She is the CEO of the Association Forum. That's kind of the umbrella organization for associations far and wide and a very big part of Chicago's economic vitality. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today.
8: Uh, thank you so much for having me, Rick, and thank you uh, to our, our governor and our mayor for all the great work they're doing, leading efforts. Now, the Sunday Spin continues
0: on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday evening, 7.07 on this Sunday evening, and welcome to the bonus hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio, and joining me now is economics professor David Merriman from the University of Illinois, Chicago, part of the University of Illinois Systems Institute of Government and Public Affairs. Uh, Professor Merriman, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Uh, The professor was part of, a, a, I believe it was a a group of authors that uh, took it upon themselves uh, at the request of the University of Illinois to look at the possible fiscal impact on the state uh due to the pandemic and uh it's not a pretty picture and uh, i believe uh, uh david your 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 results came out before governor pritzker kind of gave his version of how uh his uh, government accounting office was forecasting things
2: that's right yeah yeah we we were i, th- I think uh the that- commission on government forecasting and town and which is a legislative uh entity came out first and then uh we came out and then the uh the governor's uh office management budget came out
0: well it's uh, it's, it's, it's uh, ugly
2: Oh, with pretty pretty bad news
0: it, yes it's ugly it's dripping with red ink and and if you could why don't you can you just kind of walk us through what uh your analysis showed
2: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, there's really uh, three main things to think about. What's going to happen to revenue? What's going to happen to spending? And what's going to happen to assets, the value of assets? And and the most important part of assets is, of course, the the pension investments. And, you know, it's bad news on all fronts. The worst news is probably on revenue, at least for the short term. And so uh, there's a wide range, I have to say, because we, you know, we wrote this in early April. There was a lot of, uh, uh, different views on how bad the recession was going to be. And so we had a range of losses anywhere in terms of revenue declines, anywhere from about $4 billion to over a longer period. That would be in, a, in kind of in the current 2020 year, not the fiscal year, but the entire calendar year, from $4 billion to $28 billion over a longer period of time if the recession was really bad. I still think that's probably the right. Picture uh, we're probably talking uh, over a couple of years at least oh I would say at least twelve billion dollars of decline in revenue you've got to remember that it's on about a sixty to seventy billion dollar budget on spending the picture is is much less bad. The big thing that's going to get hit there is Medicaid, and we're probably talking only about two billion dollars or or two or three billion dollars only about two or three billion dollars right and then. You know, investments, it's very hard to tell, Um, but, you know, there certainly will be a hit over the long term uh, in terms of the funding level of uh, pension funds. And, you know, you you should remember that there are state pension funds. There are also local government pension funds. We, We didn't really attempt to come up with a quantitative number there, but it's going to be significant
0: one of the things i was curious about and i and i noted when i read this report and and was writing this writing about it was that issue about uh medicaid expenditures and i would think that obviously with a pandemic and the increased health care costs and the way that the pandemic hits those without uh, the resources that that's where the state budget would would really get slammed
2: yeah, it does get slammed. Uh, there, they're, you know, partly the federal government has, uh, the, you know, the Medicaid is a state and federal program matching program. The federal government has upped the match rate a little bit uh, by six, from fifty to six fifty six percent of each dollar we spent is matched by the federal government, um, and that'll help um, the federal government. In addition to that, has some money to bail out hospitals to give hospitals some additional money, but the it's not going to be enough to cover it and you know we don't know in the long run what the federal government's going to do but it's just it just turns out it's it's not as much money as on the revenue side that's where the big hit's going to come in. Uh,
0: and yeah you i mean you you get to the the, the big question of the federal government and I want to I want to come back yeah. to that in a, a, a little bit but um okay so we have we have that kind of range of revenues uh, losses of, of f- from four point three billion with a short downturn and a strong fast recovery to twenty eight billion dollars dragging out through twenty twenty three. How does that compare with the way that the governor presented it the other day?
2: Oh uh, well, I, I think the governor's first of all, the governor was only for the next fiscal year. And so it doesn't match up exactly. So these for the fiscal right. year that starts in July and goes through the end of June of uh, 2021. And, and um, it, it's very much on the low end of our range. That would be, it's around $4 billion, I believe, in uh, decline in revenue. And that would be a really, if we could get through it with just that, that would be a really uh, very optimistic solution. Very optimistic case.
0: Well, when, I mean, when you look at already, he's talking about the need to short-term borrow money to get us through the end of the budget year that that ends June 30th. And then, of course, that becomes, well, that might cover over something. That becomes an obligation in the budget year that starts uh, on uh, July 1st.
2: Right. Although one thing to recognize then is, you know, the federal government delayed um, the The federal income tax, tax. right. Right, And because of that, um, Illinois really had no choice because the Illinois income tax form uses the the result from the federal income tax form. And so Illinois had no, uh, no choice. And it also moved up its date, which means uh, according to people at the Department of Revenue, that's going to be a significant hit to revenues. but we will get that back or at least some of that back in in early July. So the short-term borrowing to get us through to July 1st, um, it's not such a terrible thing. Normally, I would be, you know, say that's a a really bad plan. In this case, there's some justification for it, but we're clearly not going to have enough money to get through the next fiscal year. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's going to just be added to what we need to pay.
0: We're speaking with economics professor David Merriman from the University of Illinois, Chicago, part of the U of I Systems Institute of Government and Public Affairs. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline Studio. And joining me on the phone is Professor David Merriman from the University of Illinois Chicago and the U of I's Institute of Government and Public Affairs. We're talking about the pandemic's effects on the state budget and what lies ahead and sure it's it's uh, uncertain uh times that we're in but there is a certainty uh this budget is in for a big hit and uh i i, I don't think you're going to disagree with me uh, professor merriman no that's for sure yeah uh, so i guess i'm curious um we looked at as part of the governor's statement about revenues uh falling And, of course, on the November ballot, we've got the constitutional amendment uh, proposal to change the state's income tax. Uh, But one factor I want to point out is that uh, originally it had been forecast to raise about $1.4 billion if it was approved by voters um and in effect for a half a year that has already been reduced by 200 million in the governor's estimate but uh we have a good friend of the program ron with a question so ron good to hear from you and i hope i didn't steal your thunder on that oh, no hey rick it's just really
2: good uh, talking to you rick yes and that's my question professor that the economic uh, ramifications of the the, the, the fair tax, but also the political realities of it. So that that's my question. And, and Rick, just really good talking to
0: you. Enjoy the show as always. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Ron, Professor Merriman.
2: Okay, well, I can talk better about the economics than I can about the uh, you know the the politics of it. And I guess we did do a report a few months ago on the sort of the economics of this. Um, you know, uh, it, it clearly can raise a significant amount of revenue by having uh, uh, graduated rate income taxes. Uh, I don't think that's fundamentally changed. Uh, the question of, you know what a, in the short run, I think it's quite clear, that it will raise revenue. The long-run question is, will there be a significant deleterious effect as, as you know, people in the high-income brackets uh, move to other places? Um, you know, I find, you know, based on the experience in California, New York, New Jersey, all of which have relatively high income tax rates, um, I you know that I find that I don't think there's going to be a massive wishing sound. There could be some slow, gradual uh, movement out, uh, but we're, we're probably going to raise a significant amount of of income, uh, and you know we're certainly going to need that income at this point. Um, and there may be an issue of you know in, in terms of tax fairness. Uh, who's going to be hurt the worst as a result of this COVID nineteen? I think it, it probably isn't a surprise to anybody that uh, the the people, uh, the more uh, moderate and low income people, are probably going to be hurt worse than those of us who are, you know, more fortunate.
0: Let me. Uh, I, I don't want to drag it too political, but let me let me take a stab at this from an economic standpoint, is that obviously this proposed constitutional amendment uh, was poised to probably be the uh, most expensive political campaign on the uh, state's November general election ballot. Uh, mm-hmm. Things obviously have changed in the nature of campaigning, not only for candidates but for also for political initiatives. But that having been yeah. said, you know, we kind of had the argument laid out earlier in this in on the two sides of this, about quote uh, the supporters calling it a fairer tax, and that the wealthier should pay their fair share, and that uh it would that ninety three percent of taxpayers would pay uh the same, if not less under the proposed rates that were adopted by law if, if this amendment were to pass. On the opposite side, and, and basically there's uniform Republican opposition to this, is the argument that uh, nothing prohibits the legislature from raising uh, the rates and, and perhaps changing them so that it would extend further down into more middle-class incomes and and so the the question i have for you is in this time of uncertainty which which argument kind of wins out here because you know right. the the argument being and 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 the republicans have made this and i am not taking a side but their point was the wealthy don't have enough to bail us out And that was before and that eventually yep. those rates would creep down into the middle class I mean, I could see that as a Republican argument.
7: First
2: of all, it's clear that the, the, I agree with the argument that at least that the rates that have been proposed or even anything that's kind of a reasonable set of rates compared to what other states have done, the wealthy don't have enough money. There's just not enough money up there to, to totally bail it out, not to fix it. Fix it. Of course, it would help. The 1400000000 billion, you've got to remember, is for six months. I can't. You know, I can't talk about what the Illinois legislature would do. I can tell you, I've looked at about 20 years of data from uh, states that both had flat taxes and graduated rate taxes. And that 20-year period, you know, did include the 2008, uh, you know, very bad recession and also the uh, 2000-2001 recession, which wasn't quite as bad, but still a big hit. And uh, we, we haven't, you know, totally finished analyzing the data or published anything on this yet. But The basic impression that I got from looking at that data is tax increases have been of any kind have been quite rare, and they haven't really been different in graduated rate states versus uh states with a flat tax so uh,
0: so you haven't seen like pressure to move those rates uh to capture more uh more people. In a graduated, that's, in a graduated, that's correct.
2: Sense. There haven't been very many tax cha- tax rate changes of any kind, and most of the changes that have gone on have been rate cuts. I mean, and that's just been the kind of the general tenor of the country over the last couple of decades is to cut taxes, and so uh, you know, uh, uh, I think. This could be different. Obviously, Illinois is a pretty unique state in a lot of ways, and it could be that it will, uh, you know, there will be compelling uh, arguments to raise the tax rate. I can tell you that's not what's happened in other states and even some other, you know, kind of relatively liberal states. We haven't seen that. Um,
0: one other thing I want to ask uh, as far as state taxation is uh, the sales tax. And obviously, with the kind of a decimated uh, retail economy, um, if perhaps there might be more pressure to try to expand the state sales tax when we know sales tax revenues are
2: going to be very, very low. Right. Um so, yeah, and, and I, I will say, you know, it's it's very hard to figure out what uh, what's going to happen with uh, sales tax. I've looked at some recent data, particularly in Cook County, and, and we think it's going to be pretty devastating. Uh, we're talking about 20% drops or, or, or more in terms of sales tax revenue. Um, there's been many discussions over many years about uh, broadening the base of the sales tax to include some services. Um uh, you know i I don't know the the political uh, unwillingness to do that has has always been very very strong, and I'm not sure even in this era that's going to change, but it's certainly. You know, certainly possible.
0: Well, I just wonder. Uh, you know, given when you look at you know the, the the people that point out that are critics of Illinois' tax structure point to states that don't have an you know an income tax, but they're heavily reliant on sales taxes, and that can't be good for their economies.
2: Right. Well, the right the sales tax. You know, it's probably more likely to hit low income and middle income people than income taxes. Um, and uh, but. Illinois has the problem, that is, especially in Chicago, where we have, you know, Cook County rates and city rates. Right. We have relatively high rates, but the tax doesn't produce very much revenue. So broadening the base kind of makes sense, but you might want, at least in some places, to try and also lower the rates some. And if you do that, you're probably not going to get a lot of additional revenue. Um, so. Yeah. we're right. in a bind <laughs> that's to put it kindly I think is
0: over so so now comes the big unknown and 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 basically my last question is we don't know what the feds are going to do we've seen numbers floating anywhere from 500 uh billion to one trillion dollars as the requests for state and local assistance uh, up to the feds um uh-huh. and then we also see uh as as happens in congress and it's true with both parties now there's an opportunity to kind of try to leverage and play leverage games right. with it uh which we're seeing right now but we're also seeing that you know pretty much a pause that this could be a while before there's a, a relief package that would get to the states
2: yeah i i you know i sort of don't see uh, I, I understand the politics of it but I don't see how the federal government can not come up with some money for the states because uh, the states just can't handle this on their own. I mean, Illinois is not as bad as the hit is going to be in Illinois. We're not the worst. I mean, we're we're in worse financial condition than a lot of other states, but a lot of other states are getting hit even harder. You have to remember that the some of the states, uh, like Alaska, uh, which don't even have and doesn't have an income tax is hit because the price of oil has plummeted and they get a lot of revenue by taxing the extraction of oil and and so uh, I think um, this is probably a winner politically because every state uh, is going to need more revenue um, how you know it, it, i still say it won't be enough i mean it'll right. it'll it'll Stops the bleeding a little bit, but it won't be enough. And um, Illinois, unfortunately, has a reputation as a state that's been irresponsible, and that might work against us as we negotiate for more revenue.
0: That's David Merriman, Professor of Economics at the University of Illinois, Chicago, a member of the U of I's Institute of Government and Public Affairs. Professor Merriman, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thanks. It's been great to talk to you. Take care.
0: on this Sunday evening. This is your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio and happy to have on the phone Marianne Ahern, political correspondent for NBC5 in Chicago. Marianne, thank you so much for joining me this evening.
7: Of course.
9: Good evening.
0: So... I'm, I'm, I want to get your take. Um, I think uh, we're going to have to see uh, Pritzker uh, do some modifications at some point uh, over this next month, now that we're in the next month-long phase of this executive order, um, only because of just uh, um, kind of the unrest that exists out there.
9: He is, of course, not going to say it's because of that. But I really, you know, starting with last week on Friday, he said uh, regionally we might take a look. He's kind of vac- today, he's kind of vacillated he said,
0: he- on that, you know. I mean, he goes back and forth on it, and you know that the 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 virus can go anywhere; it's not bound by geography. But then he'll turn around and say, "Well, if you know, you're, if you live, your closest neighbor is an acre away." well that's different
9: right right i I do think especially with what's going on in indiana the five phase plan that was presented with lots of caveats of okay this is what our plan is we hope this is what's going to happen we might have to scale back i think folks in illinois need and want to hear the same what is our plan even if it may not start as soon as the Indiana plan, which is already rolling out, even if it is May 30th, or maybe it's, you know, parts of the state sooner, tell us what your plan is. <laughs> Folks are restless. They're frustrated. They've had enough. They want to know, where are we headed? Uh, do we have to wait till June 1 to hear what his plan is?
0: I mean, they, 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 they want to know that there is a plan. Um, and, and, absolutely.
9: And of course... You know, he he says he's in discussions. I'm sure he is with business. Some of this private business is going to decide for themselves whether they're going to bring their workers back. You know, I have already heard cases of folks saying, "Hey, you know, wherever you're working now remotely, you may be this way indefinitely until there's a vaccine." Others have said you're going to be back. You know, in July, who knows? So there there there's going to be that. But the governor <laughs> needs. To show his leadership and go ahead and give give his ideas of where we're headed and and folks haven't heard that yet
0: no all we've gotten is basically well we're we're looking at the advice and guidance from the white house and dr fauci about the the two-week decline in uh cases over a, a, a span to go into phases of reopening but that that's still guidance and i'm not saying You know, I'm not saying flip a switch and let's reopen the state of Illinois tomorrow. But I think I do think people are looking for just some more a bit more substance.
9: Absolutely. He had to cave on the church, you know, after the federal lawsuit was filed. He had to uh, clarify his executive order from the church in Rockford and say, uh, whoa, I never said you couldn't go to church. You know, 10 people can go. Well, what happened today? They had 60 to 80 were reported there at the church. Now, no one ran in and arrested them and said you can't come. But now it has put all of the churches sort of on notice of, oh, well, why aren't you having church? You know, if you can have 10 people, then perhaps you should have your church with 10. Although there's plenty who have been able to watch online and watch streaming services. But it is sort of this. One day here, one day not. That that is left a lot of uncertainty.
0: Well, and it's kind of with the with the case of the church in in uh, Lena, Illinois. That that it's uh, in some respects almost I think like the uh, Darren Bailey lawsuit that that the state representative Republican from um, far southern Illinois filed. That if well if he can do it, then then everybody could do it, kind of thing. And, right, and you know that I mean, I just I, I will tell you where I sense the frustration a lot. And, and, and I had a story about, there was a, a poll that was recently conducted by uh, Harvard and uh, Northeastern University uh, among universities. It was a nationwide poll. Uh, and it, it was actually, it got into some pretty significant uh, questions for each state. And poll sample was about 600 people, plus or minus 4%. And it looked pretty well uh, balanced along all the lines that it should be for a poll. The story, I think, ran Friday morning online, and it was in the Sunday paper. I've gotten some of the most horrible email ever in in 30 years of doing this from people uh, who disagree with the poll's findings, which showed overwhelming support for governor pritzker's handling of the virus um overwhelming support for stay at home orders overwhelming support for shutting down most businesses um and it's i mean it, it's to the point that it's truly and I, obviously i know these people are frustrated but it's to the point where it is just out of frustration it's you, you know it's not just the usual well i didn't get surveyed i didn't get polled it's like this is a lie it's fake. It's not real, <laughs> and and, no. and and that by writing about this, that I am serving as a propagandist for the governor's office. And, oh my! Yeah, I mean, and, oh and and it's just like you know, what's the old story about? Don't kill the messenger. And yeah, and the thing is, you know, we're talking about a poll. Facts are facts. Certainly, there's outliers in polls. We know that, but. This was this surveyed twenty three thousand people across fifty states. Uh and the numbers are the numbers. It's not just right. you can't just say, well, no, it's wrong. It's fake. Um
9: Well, you know, and we all have such short attention spans. You know, a month ago All of us were nervous. All of us were, what the heck is going on? You know, uh, when I went to see the McCormick place set up, I thought, oh my gosh, what is going to happen here? Right. You know, and now they're dismantling it. So I mean, boy, you know, if if we didn't have ADD before, we've got it now. I mean, you know, our our worry was at at pitch at high pitch, and today ventilators, ventilators,
0: ventilators. You know, they've got to have the ventilators. Got to have the ventilators. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've been taken through a lot of roller coaster rides here, and but again, it comes with the point that this is something we just don't know about. And exactly.
9: I don't think obviously. I don't think the state, especially the Chicago area, is ready to open up. They they're they're talking about the hospital rate uh, is down, and there are positive signs there, but uh, the positivity rate on these testing, and we're we're testing a lot. We're right. doing you know. 19,000 tests in the last 24 hours. The positivity rate has been between like 15 to 20% somewhere in there. And the World Health Organization says it needs to be down to 10% before you can you should really reopen the economy. So we're getting there. It's coming down. But it it, it is treating the whole state as one rather than as he has even himself even as Pritzker himself has said not necessarily county by county, but regions. They have hospital regions because that's what they watch. How many beds are there? How many ICU beds? how many beds? That kind of thing. I think we're going to see those regions opening up before May 30th. I really
0: do. We're speaking with Marianne Ahern, political correspondent for NBC5 in Chicago. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. 746 on this Sunday evening. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune. This is your Sunday spin. Joining me on the phone is Marianne Ahern from NBC 5 Chicago. We're talking about uh, Governor Pritzker, the executive orders, what may lie ahead. Uh, obviously, Everything is topsy-turvy. I just had David Merriman from the University of Illinois-Chicago on to talk about state finances. Uh, We've heard Pritzker, uh, Governor Pritzker talk about there there will be a a severe financial impact on state revenues, uh, but we don't know how much that's going to be. Um, We don't even know when the legislature is going to allow itself to reconvene to even take up what was supposed to be a budget uh, that was due by the end of this month? They haven't convened in two months. Um, and, and Isn't
9: that interesting? I mean, they can get the federal government. They've, they've been able to travel to D.C. and figure it out. Right. They can't get down to Springfield. <laughs> this is kind of come on. Yeah, you guys can walk and chew gun them at the same time. I think they need to. They need to figure this out a little. Are we going to wait till July one? It sounds like.
0: Well, and and certainly there have been these kind of uh, groups that have been meeting. Now, granted, I would imagine they're more uh, partisan and caucus groups than they are bipartisan. Um, Mm -hmm. And the fact is, if they don't pass a a budget by May 31st, it takes an extraordinary majority, which the Democrats already have, but it could also provide leverage points uh, for things that may get cut that people don't want to see cut or certain interest groups within the caucuses don't want to see cut so uh i mean i'm still thinking it has to be a six-month budget um because everything is just floating on the fly here
9: oh i would think i would think so too i mean they it, it and, and and as they assess uh, I hate to say the damage, but it is the damage. I mean, as they assess all of this fallout of what's happened just in these last six weeks. I don't know how they could even look beyond six months. It's going to take so much time to figure it all out.
0: I wanted to ask you, since you're kind of uh, becoming the voice of the pool chair, in, <laughs> in both uh, at City Hall and uh, at the Thompson Center, uh, one, it's it's just eerie to see those places that empty. Yeah, uh, number oh.
9: one. It is. It's so odd to walk in. First, you have your temperature taken as you walk in, which I don't mind. I'm glad. I kind of, okay, great. <laughs> Make sure I'm okay. And, uh, you know, love the access, but never have I missed my colleagues so much. You learn so much from each other. We never, You know, you don't realize how much in just the chatting before and after and the discussion and the other questions that everybody else has. You know, so when you're there alone, you know, it, it, it might look grand. Oh, wow, she, you know, she gets to ask the questions. You're like, oh, darn, I forgot. Not that one or oh so it's you know even when folks send them in it's
0: just not the same thing well and there's yeah. a tending of we kind of feed off each other too when we're when we're there too. oh absolutely uh, yeah but I, I, I was i was curious about um mayor lightfoot and frankly just over the weekend too this the, the outdoor press conference she had uh with the emphatic you know no you cannot meet together um, and just, uh, I mean, obviously we see, for the most part, the mayor and the governor have acted in concert uh, in, the, in the overall sense. Um, but she seems to me much more out to demonstrate herself as a, in a leadership role right now.
9: Uh, oh, and I think behind the scenes, there have been some give and take. And, you know, in the sure. beginning, I'm not quite sure she was on board for closing the school, Correct. you know, Correct. And as quickly as he wanted to close them and did. So, you know, she sort of has had to come up to speed on some of these uh, stay-at-home policies. But now that she has. And has seen the national recognition that she also has gotten, as well as he. Um, it almost seems as if they're vying for, you know, who, who has more uh, MSNBC, uh, <laughs> Face the Nation, whoever you might, you know, more possible VP <laughs> looks than the other. But um, and this is also the former federal prosecutor. You know, she's still feeling her way as, right. uh, as the mayor. But she knows, certainly knows her role, knows how to be a federal prosecutor, and likes to throw the hammer. But there's a way of also doing that in, in become and in being a politician. It, it's it's a delicate balance. And I do think folks appreciate it. I think they've enjoyed the memes right. until she got her own haircut. You know, then it was like, wait a second. You know, right. the rest of us are the rest of us are dying for a haircut. Hold on, how, how did she happen to do that? But it, whatever. Um, so. Uh, i i i I, i'm glad that you know hey if there is a stay-at-home policy as there is then then let's do it we're the rest of us are working on it doing as much as we can i know i am so if we're hearing about big parties at places that's wrong no you can't look the other way
0: well i think we're perhaps maybe i don't mean to overstate this but but i think we're in defining times for for both the mayor and the governor that this will come to define their tenure uh as as political leaders in the state
9: yeah. oh 100 and and there's going to be you know there's going to be an accounting uh, not only of the decisions that they made but the money spent and was it worth it and you know in the heat of the moment uh as we all as i mentioned at the beginning was so nervous and said oh wow throw everything you've got at it and now taking a breath and saying Ooh, wait a second. Did we really need that, or was that worth it? And should everybody have definitely stayed home and closed their businesses? And oh my gosh, how do we rebuild? So you know, this is yeah, it's going to take some a lot brighter minds than mind to say, "Whoa, here's the plus and minus column." And and overall, I think they are, as you as you noted, the poll they're they're riding fairly high of what decisions they've made. But there's going to be some that are going to look back and say, I'm not sure that was the best idea.
0: Yeah. And of course, again, polls are only a snapshot in time. And this is obviously something that's still playing out. And, you know, certainly no politician is going to want to look like uh, in a pandemic with uh, uh, life or death at stake of being a a penny pitching, pinching miser. Uh, But at the same time. You know there there are these real costs and how much uh, in in the kind of wild west that uh, Pritzker talks about of buying PPE. You know how much how much are we spending? Uh, you know that that I think that's a you know those are all things that we'll be reconciling. But I, I, I do look ahead to and, and I talked to David Merriman about this about uh, what what is uh, what is what are the Feds going to do? And uh, I'm not so sure that uh, Senate President Don Harmon's uh, letter to the congressional delegation, uh, while it might have sparked what he thought would have been a thoughtful conversation, just tended to spark more spotlight on Illinois and the complaints that have been raised by critics for a long time about how it's fiscally mismanaged.
9: Right. Right. And folks are going to say from the very beginning, where is that money going? Is it truly going to pay for McCormick Place, or is it going to pay for pensions, which there is this gaping hole? Uh, yeah, there's going to be lots of folks who are going to say, "Hold on, you guys have gotten enough."
0: Well, I mean, I, but I do think there will be another uh, package coming out of out of the federal government, and I'm saying,
9: right this week, perhaps even as soon, or within the next couple of weeks, as, as they head back.
0: I'm going to say it's going to take longer than that. I mean, because uh, I think uh, there are complaints, especially among Senate Republicans in Washington, that, uh, you know, they were supposed to hold the ground. Mitch McConnell wanted to hold their ground on spending. And now when you've got the issue of the states coming in and you've started hearing McConnell talk about, well, uh, let's lift uh, uh, liability restrictions on health care workers, now you're going to the heart of... Uh, The the basically the trial attorneys, which are a strong Democratic constituent, um, there's going to be a lot of leverage games I think being played here. Oh man, for sure, for sure.
9: Uh, You know, when you talk about the PPE, I just have to add. You know, I have a a daughter who's a nurse. She goes uh, back to work after a maternity leave first night at a very well known hospital here in the city, and. No PPE. No PPE. She brought her own. Brought her own mask. Now, not on an ICU floor, granted. Still. But I think, okay, all right, so what's going on? Where are you hiding? Where is this? If you don't have PPE for the folks on a floor care, and, and caring for mild, what? Uh, they, I forget what the, they call it, uh, suspected. There's a, another correct medical term for it, suspected COVID or something. Uh, mm-hmm. Watching. Uh, and so you want to you want to reopen the economy and have PPE for the people at their office? Heck, you don't even have it necessarily. This is within the last couple of weeks. You don't have it at a hospital. What's going on? So here I am at the beginning of this conversation saying hey you're gonna reopen and now I am at the end of the conversation <laughs> <fan>. <laughs> well but, but, flipping the coin and saying okay make sure you've got what you need before you do it
0: well but you 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 know you touched on the numbers uh, of testing in the last 24 hours I think it was over 19,500 or so and and the increased number of tests uh, as well as the you know, an attributable part to the increased uh, number of cases being detected. But as everybody talks about testing, 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 to me, the argument is, OK, I get tested one day and I'm negative. When, don't don't I need to be tested every day?
9: Right. Right. How do, you, how, how do you not know? Aren't there those? I mean, I guess you're right. If you're asymptomatic, you don't have the fever. You don't have the cough. You don't have. The, and how? Oh, boy. Yeah. That's why I think you're going to see some who are businesses will say, tell there's a vaccine. If you're working at home, you're going to be working at home for a while, a long while.
0: Yeah, and and we, since we don't know uh, uh, the, the serological test on antibodies, that that testing does not seem to be reputable at all, uh, from what I can read. Not just you know hearing from the governor's office, but just seeing it in other states as well. Is that you know everybody was looking for that antibody testing as kind of that second phase, uh, seeing if people you know had had uh, gained some kind of immunity to it to again go to reopen things and now you don't have a reliable antibody test
9: way too soon way way too soon on that
0: so yeah we've got a we've got an interesting very interesting future ahead of us here and
9: yeah i i uh you know and as each day you know i'll, I'll check in to say to the, the governor's press secretary hey you know what's your focus today and it might be whatever and it might be hospitalization it might be ppe it might be what it, it still gets somewhat side you know their mission of what they hope is the focus of the day gets sidetracked by When are you going to reopen? What's wrong with the uh, IDES unemployment site? Um, You know, whatever other questions that are just burning through people, and I've never ever gotten as much email. Now that folks have heard me be the poll reporter, you know, (laughs) sending me their their personal questions, which I you know try and I my best to help them, but. The, the unemployment one is the biggest one of people who can't get an answer, can't get through, are so frustrated. The um, freelancers aren't even, you know, part of it right. yet till May 11th. And so, yeah, there there's we, we've got a lot to cover, right? Yeah, no shortage of stories for sure.
0: That's for sure. Marianne Ahern, political correspondent, NBC5 Chicago. Thank you so much for joining me this evening.
6: Thank you for having me.